Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Mary McGowan for part one of their discussion on the impact being born blind has on a person's attachment. Part two will be released on Tuesday, May 12th. Welcome back, everyone, to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, and I am here to bring you our latest episode. So we are changing things up a little bit this week on the podcast, and we're going to have somebody sharing a personal family experience related to attachment. Uh, The person I'm interviewing is going to be talking about a family member who was blind, a sibling actually, and then was sent to a school for the blind uh, in an era past that she will be talking about. And just kind of the impact that had on her sibling and how Mary, who I'm going to introduce in a minute, how Mary understands some of that now from an attachment perspective. So let me give you some background on the guest I'm going to be speaking with today. I'm really happy to introduce to you Mary McGowan. She has led the attachment uh, organization called, well, I should say attach um, organization for a number of years since 2011. And that stands for the Association for Training on Trauma and Attachment in Children. And that is an organization I have been involved with for many, many years. I typically go to their conference. It's really a wonderful conference each year. So any of you who are unaware of it, I would recommend it just to put a little commercial in about that before I get back to Mary. So she is the executive director there, and she has, in her role there, implemented a lot of comprehensive training for parents and professionals all across North America. And she works to raise awareness at a national level of how early abuse and neglect impact youth and families. She has also served as a post-adoption specialist for the North American Council on Adoptable Children. And she has done successful grassroots recruitment for foster and adoptive families for the last 10 years. I would also like to add um, that Mary has fostered many children over a period of 26 years. It's a long time to be fostering. And she is the adoptive parent of five children, ranging from ages 13 to 22. Uh, And uh, I'm sure that uh, that is of interest to, to many who listen to our podcast who are interested in foster care and adoption. Um, and so she has a Bachelor of Science degree in psychology, and um, she is a master's candidate in South in counseling and psychological services from St. Mary's University in Minnesota. And so she loves to share her experience and um, in 
and is known for doing so in an engaging and practical manner. And she, because she is also an adoptive parent, she has a lot of real life stories from parenting in the trenches, as well as her professional experience uh, as the leader of Attach and her professional training. So I'm so looking forward to, to hearing her and she's gonna be coming up here next. So stay tuned. Hey everybody, I'm back just as I promised for our episode today and I am here with Mary McGowan from Attach. Uh, thank you so much, Mary, for being with us and I'm so glad that we got this together. I'm really excited to be here, Karen, and I know you've been working on this for a couple years now and uh, taking it a long way, so I'm thrilled and to be a part of this and to have a chance to share some insight. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm I'm thrilled that we're going to be kind of going in a different direction today than we do sometimes on the podcast, and I shared with listeners before you hopped on with us that you're going to be sharing some personal experiences and not maybe what some people already would be expecting who know you, not necessarily about parenting or adoption or, or your own uh, uh, family currently, um, but your nuclear family, um, sharing something about your sister. So just kind of open this up, Mary, what, what we're going to be talking about today for the listeners. Okay. Well, I was thinking of different things about attachment and so many times I bypass my own sister in my process and yet she's the one that probably drew this to me. I'll call her Lynn okay. and she is about eight years older than me. She was born congenitally blind and I thought what a great topic to talk about a personal story along with some research on what happens when someone is born blind and how does that impact their attachment and their ability to trust and connect with their caregivers? And I was able to watch that firsthand within my own family. Yes, yes. So tell us a little bit uh, about, you know, how that unfolded and what, what, specific, what are some specific things about it that attachment came to your mind regarding? Well, I, I think a lot about the mirror neurons that we have, you know, and how there's such an emphasis on that, and rightfully so, where when we gaze and look into an infant's eyes and they look back at us and we mimic their facial expressions and they mimic ours, the, the uh, process that's going on neurologically is amazing. It's when a baby is actually not only seeing and repeating what you're showing them with your face and expressions, but they're also understanding the intention of them. So if it's love behind that and a connection, they're actually able through the brain to feel the intention. And I was thinking about how incredible that was. And then I was pondering about my sister who, by the way, is in a care facility and will be there her entire life uh, because of how dysfunctional she ended up getting, which I'm sure we'll get into yeah. uh, as we continue here. Yes. And so I wondered, what was it like? And can a blind person, for infant, can they attach? And what 
does it look like? And so I began studying that information, kind of driven from my love and my concern for my own sister. Well, you know, and as you're speaking, I think about Winnicott and how he talked about the mother's face is an emotional mirror for the baby. Now, this was long before we discovered mirror neurons, um, and he was talking about this. And many times when I've read that, I have wondered, like, what is that like for a blind baby? If if the, the mother's face, or perhaps we should say caregiver's face, the primary caregiver's face, um, is a mirror of the baby's emotional life, what does it mean when you can't see that? Right. And it's interesting. I appreciate how you uh, brought the attention to caregiver. As we look at the research done by like Selma Freyberg and some of the other folks that are pretty famous in this area, including Anna Freud, for example, uh, they predominantly used a psychoanalytic approach and studied the mother. So it's it's typical of the times, if you will. Uh, and so a lot of these data are founded on the mother. And yet I think your point is well taken that this actually should carry over to any caregiver with a with an infant. And so if I use quotes, you're going to hear me say mother, but it really is indicative of that first caregiving relationship and how that works. Yes, yes. So so how this the sister is older than you, correct? Yes, she's eight years older. Yes, and and so you you when you were born, she was eight years she was eight years old when you were born. Um, and when you were born, was was she still living in the home? No. So here's here's kind of the overview with yeah. with my sister. She was born, and they found out that she was congenitally blind. Uh, they tried to put her in public schools for kindergarten and she just could not uh, function. You know, they, they, there was no knowledge then of how to go about this and, you know, how to help children without using sight and the chalkboard and, you know, and those type of things. So she did not do well. And so they ended up sending her to the Iowa Braille and Sight Saving School, as it was called in Witten, Iowa. And so that was another other town that was out of town and so she would be driven there and she would spend Monday through Fridays there and many times the weekend to be honest it was old country roads there weren't uh, a lot of freeways back then nothing like that and so if the weather were poor if, if you know something was going on with my family she would stay over the weekends as well I remember being little and going there and visiting it looked like a small private college it was a big campus with old buildings but she never seemed to be happy. I would see all the other impaired, visually impaired folks there walking around doing great, you know, with their canes. And that was, again, before dogs, seeing eye dogs. And I thought it was kind of a neat thing. Little did I know she was miserable. She was lonely. She didn't connect. All of us on our eighth birthday got a bicycle. It was a tradition in our family. And my sister, of course, oh, didn't. I know. It's wonderful. <laughs> but then you look at it through my sister's eyes and she didn't get a bike. And so they got her a record player and all these different things that for us, especially me being younger, it didn't really register until I was an adult with some of the training I have to look back and say, oh my gosh, she had 
developmental trauma from the fact that she did not truly attach with my mom or dad uh, in a healthy way. And it impacted her to the point where she started, first she started um, faking illnesses Mm -hmm. and so that she could come home. And Mm -hmm. so they would pick her up and bring her home and then they would, you know, start understanding that that wasn't legitimate. So she actually, and very sadly, started uh, self-inflicting injuries Mm -hmm. so that she could come home. I remember, I'm not sure how old I was, maybe middle school, but I remember my mom saying, boy, that sure looks like an iron mark on her arm. Mm. And as we started putting the pieces together, we realized it was sadly that she was doing whatever she needed to do to try to come home because she was seeking that innate drive to connect and be close to family. And I'm sure she felt total abandonment as first grader being left and sent away. Uh, At that time, that's what people thought was the best thing to do we're giving her a place where they can teach you how to sew and cook and study and learn braille and all those academic things but it was never taken into consideration the emotional and the trauma that they were actually creating by having her live outside of the home yeah well and you know i'm not sure what years this was going on but you know we we know um this is where a lot of Volby's ideas came from because it, it was not just that people did not understand attachment was specific to a specific person um, with like a disability or something that just wasn't understood at all. Um, and his, he lost his nanny when he was three or four, I believe it was, I can't remember if it was three or four. Um, and at that time, uh, children did not, it's sort of like on, if anyone watches Downton Abbey, like the babies get brought down to like the tea room for a couple hours a day. That's it. Right. The rest of the time they were with their nannies who become their primary caregivers. And so, you know, the idea, I'm sure then these were not bad people, but when John Bowlby's nanny quit, we find another nice nanny. It won't matter. It, 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 it's just someone there to take care of them. Right. And so I'm sure with, and it did matter and it changed the trajectory of his life according to what he reports the impact that that had on him um but i think it would be the same with with um parents of a child with this kind of disability we're doing the right thing like we can't just give in to this idea of them wanting to come home and even shutting down the parent or caregivers are an attachment system because they may have wanted to bring your sister home. I don't know. I mean, feeling like, no, 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 we have to do what's best for her. That's right. I I know my mom uh, suffered guilt and shame over it forever because she wanted to be there for her. But everyone told her, as you're saying, it was the early fifties, middle fifties. Everyone's telling her that this is the thing to do this, you know, this is the best way that you can help her. And, and so they did it. I think she did it reluctantly. And um, it, it was so hard on my sister and on my family. And it's interesting as I speak to my older brothers who are older than her and look at their perspective. We talked about it a little bit this weekend as we were visiting and how they kind of saw it, but really didn't know what they were looking at. You know, they were able to identify she was sad. She was trying to get home no matter what, but really didn't understand it. And they actually developed some animosity because thought she was a big faker, you know, and, and, 
an attention seeker. And so it had a negative impact on how they viewed her, which now, as we learn about attachment and, and understanding that need to be loved and, and to trust other human beings and know that they have your back, they feel, you know, some sadness and guilt as well for not understanding that. But as they say, we don't know what we don't know. And back then we didn't know it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think as I move forward in my life as the executive director of Attach and helping all these hundreds and thousands of people, but I wasn't there for my sister. And so, mm -hmm. you know, you talked about John Bowlby and probably his motivation. If he hadn't gone through that with his nanny, perhaps we wouldn't have, you know, his attachment theories to work with. And a lot of us are driven by things that have happened to us or that we've been around, you know, in our own childhoods that hopefully from a healthy perspective, we can move forward and say, I don't want anyone else to ever have to go through that again. Let's get information and training and education on this. And thank goodness so many other people feel that way as well, because there's some really good studies that have come out since uh, Selma's work in the 60s that are, are using MRIs and, you know, uh, things like that to study a uh, control group, for example, of individuals that um, have 2020 vision and then looking at sight impaired individuals and how they respond without using the mirror neurons and some really interesting and hopeful findings came from that study. Well, yeah, it'd be great if you can share some of those, um, you know, we're, we're both big fans of Michael Trout and yes. he studied with Selma Freiberg and he um, knows um, about uh, a lot about the blind babies that she worked with and and some of the things that that she taught about that and um, but with your looking into some of this you mentioned Selma Freiberg um, and other more recent things how would you summarize some of the research you've done about this how attachment is impacted by someone whose sight is impaired well I think um Again, one of the biggest, uh, the, the Journal of Neuroscience, a study done in 2009 um, at, uh, looked at the mirror neurons, again, as I was referring yes. to, with, yes. with MRIs, with this control group. And what yes. they found, which is fantastic, we have a part of our brain called the supramodal. And what it does, it's a sensory place in our brain that sort of takes two senses, usually hearing and vision, and uses an abstract part of our brain to formulate them together to help understand responses. And so in a simple way, it, it allows the hearing to compensate for the vision impairment in that part of the brain and allows an infant to be able to activate the mirror neurons. So I was so excited to hear with this study that mirror neurons can be activated with those that are vision impaired. And that was thrilling for me to find out. And the result was that humans can have their mirror neurons activated without sight because of that, that model of the abstract part of the brain. And I, I think I would have gotten up and danced, you know, uh, to know about this and to understand that this really makes an impact and that we can connect children and infants can respond with mirror neurons even when they can't see. I just, 
to me, that's some of the most incredible and enlightening research that I've seen. And I plan on um, looking into this much more deep and probably creating a workshop that I, that I take in various places because it's just profound uh, what we're finding. Well, that's fascinating. And, you know, the brain is so adaptive. You know, I think of Norman Doidge's book, The Brain That Changes Itself, how after a stroke, parts of the brain that are harmed related to speech or whatever, another part of the brain can take over. You know, so it's just really kind of interesting what you're saying, how adaptive that we are. And, you know, I know even in Selma Freiberg's studies, she talked about there was a concern, you know, that what happens if the baby can't see the mother's face and instead of the babies smiling at the mother's face, the babies would smile at hearing the mother's voice. That's right. That's right. And and not only did was she able and others following afterwards for validity uh, and, and repeating this, they not only saw that they would be able to smile at the mother's voice, but they also would turn away and show fear of a stranger's voice. And so they were allowed to experience, quote, stranger danger, which, you know, uh, as well. And so by looking at the sound, the hearing, it was even more profound. And taking that one step further, even more uh, impactful is tactile. Yes. So, so the voice has an impact. The baby can smile, although they do find that the smiles start a little bit later in life and they don't last as long uh, because they don't have that, you know, the mirror neurons from looking at each other and continuing mimicking it. But then when you add tactile, holding, touching, the smile increases in intensity and in length. And so, and as we know in the attachment field, touch, holding, mm-hmm. touch, just that connectedness. I mean, it's the first feeling when you're born is, you know, is, is touch. And so it's powerful and hopeful again that we're able to use other senses to help a child feel safe, to connect with them, to to smile and interact with them. Yes, I love what you're bringing up with that. And because um, sometimes we forget that when we talk about a lot of sensory things that our skin is our biggest sensory organ, you know, so that you can still experience touch um, as part of a sensory thing. And I know also in, in, um, Selma Freiberg studies too. I, I remember reading about that um, the babies would, of course, all babies use their mouth and mouth things. Yes. But the the blind babies did this like so much more. Exactly. Of all of that. So it, it's just again um, how adaptive we are as human beings. That that need, as you were saying, for connection and feeling of safety is, as Bowlby said, biologically hardwired into us. Like we are going to find ways to have this, whether or not, you know, your sister had to do these really drastic things to try to move towards that um, and how our babies adapt. It's just so fascinating. And like you said, it's inspiring that we are that adaptive. Yeah, absolutely. And it it gives me hope. Again, as I reflect, and I'm being very personal in this interview today, and I think that's okay, because I think we need to hear, you know, the data, 
but with how it impacts. And, you know, when I look at my sister and read this, it's like, boy, I wish we would have known this then, but we didn't. But what can we do from this point forward, you know, for all those coming uh, and being born with these issues that we can take this knowledge and, and move forward to the, to a place of really helping change their lives and having an impact in, teaching parents and caregivers how to attach with a, a sight-impaired infant. And I think that's critical. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's really critical is that they need the tools to know how to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I uh, work with a therapist in your state, Alexis Greaves. You oh, sure. probably know Alexis. <laughs> and, um, she works with hearing impaired individuals. Um, oh, really? Oh, yeah. So yes. Okay. She's um, no sign language. And so, you know, she uh, is looking at attachment issues in the deaf community and helping deaf parents. And I think this is something that we have to really be thinking about very carefully is, you know, how how we have to adapt some of what we put out there for people in terms of parenting and things like this. Like, what does this mean um, for someone who's blind? What does this mean for someone who has a blind baby? Interesting. I can't help but bring in this is us that they just had a blind baby on there. Um, so I don't know if you watched that. I, I didn't know. No, know a lot of our listeners, I'm sure watch that show. Okay. Um, and um, you know, how, what, what do we, what extra things do we need to be thinking about to be inclusive? And, and to be um, accommodating folks and giving information that matches their world. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. And even with other children, as you know, we look at um, trauma and attachment, trauma issues and attachment in uh, parenting, foster, adoptive, you know, children of uh, origin, original uh, I'm sorry, first families, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's it's important that we find alternative ways. I have a 16 year old son right now that cannot learn in a traditional way. And they don't offer other ways unless you go there and really advocate and say, hey, this isn't working. Can you sit down and can you show them in a, in a tactile way or a visual way or, you know, instead of just saying the words because the executive functioning isn't there and they don't understand it. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think it's an awakening, uh, understanding attachment and what we need to do, as you're saying, as a society, as a whole, in various situations, particularly education and even in, in therapeutic settings that our therapists and clinicians need to be trained and understand alternative ways to help parents connect and attach with their babies and infants and children. Yes, yes. Well, Mary, I am so excited to continue this conversation in part two of the podcast. I'm going to draw us to a close here as we get ready for the next part of the interview. All right. Thank you. This concludes part one of the two-part conversation between Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Mary McGowan on the impact being born blind has on a person's attachment. Part two will be released on Tuesday, April 21st. 
Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. Thank you.